right, uh, we are back. You may have noticed in the Sacramento Bee uh, about a week ago an article about the ageless rebel. Pop icon James Dean, 50 years after his death, still casts a giant shadow across America. In that article, which is an excellent article by David Barton, I would recommend it to any of you listeners uh, quite highly, they mentioned that a local writer, William Hughes, was going to mark the occasion by traveling down to where uh, James Dean um, passed away in a fiery uh, a car crash. And joining us to talk about uh, James Dean and, and going down to visit that site is William Hughes. Welcome to Radio Parallax. Thanks very much, Doug. Now, you, uh, you, you're a local writer. Yes, I've been living in Sacramento geez, for about 20 years now. And you got interested in James Dean uh, how long ago? Well, it's several years ago. Um, the way it started, I went down to the, uh, just to visit some friends in Los Angeles. We went to the Griffith Observatory, you know, one evening, and there's a beautiful bust statue of uh, James Dean there. And I don't know, I just started to get interested. And then the bee picked up an article from another newspaper about the crash site. And of course, uh, you know, you grow up with the legend of Dean. So one, I forget, it was in the February, I think, of a couple of years ago, up down to the AT&T golf tournament, of course, at Pebble Beach, and then mm -hmm. continued down to Paso Robles and went mm -hmm. to the crash site. And the memorial there by Onishi, um, a Japanese businessman, it just, the sentiments he left were so beautiful. I found myself uh, kind of in a dream world of Dean, and the next thing I knew, I was in Fairmount, Indiana, Dean's home. Yeah. And so on and on it went until... Well, it just kept building and building. And as I said to you the other day, I just got back from Marfa, Texas, where they filmed Giant. So it's been a big deal. And, of course, the next step was to go to the crash site on the 50th anniversary, September 30th. And as I'm driving down on I-5 about five miles before I'm to turn off on 41 to go into the junction, a replica of his spider pulls up next to me. Really? And yeah. There were several guys there with replicas of the car. Little Bastard, it was called. Wow. Um, number 130. So that led me into the crash site. And it was a very, very delightful night. I gather there were quite a few people there. Yeah, there was a couple of hundred, maybe 300 people. Really? Maybe. Yeah, maybe a little bit more. Wow. In fact, I expected more. You know, I was expecting some heavy hitters from Hollywood. Um, but it was really a very pleasant night. I met some people I had met um, through the article that David had done in the B from Salinas. Um, so it was a really nice night. Uh, good rock and roll music from the time period. There was one James Dean impersonator there, which worked out pretty well, uh, <laughs> because there's only one. And, of course, at the very moment, at 545, we yeah. all went down to the uh, junction, which is now the James Dean Memorial Junction. Um, I think it's going to be officially dedicated. Yeah, I noticed that little article in the paper. They're going to actually make a commemoration officially for the state of California. Yeah, it's very nice. I mean, after 50 years, and, and to call it the junction gives it a certain time period. So it was a very nice night down there. I'd been down before, obviously, and the Jack Ranch Cafe was full, and they had Boy Scouts selling things to raise money for the hurricane victims in New Orleans. And, uh, and everybody you, there, of course, is a James Dean... Jedi, I guess, yeah. is a good description. You've gathered some memorabilia yourself. Yes, I do. Um, I have a show up now at the Tower Theater. Probably going to leave it up maybe till the end of the month. The theater is working on getting the movies. They're on a list now, on a waiting list to get the three movies. So Let's mention those, that he really is as famous as he is, and then the icon that he is, he really only made three movies, Rebel Without a Cause, East right. of Eden, and Giant. East of Eden makes him famous to his great credit, to his great acting credit. And, of course, the other two were released after his death. 
quite a story, obviously. It's an American story and uh, the great tragedy of it, only 24 years old. The legend obviously lives on. And uh, like I said, East of Eden is a very important movie, and I think very few people know that, that this different movie from Giant and Rebel really is what puts him on the map. You know, he had really quite a repertoire, quite a resume before he uh, went out to Hollywood. He did a lot of work in New York, mm-hmm. a lot of television work. And, of course, he was noticed by Ilya Kazan in a play, The Immortalist. And uh, yeah, Kazan didn't think much of him, but as soon as he looked at him, he said, there's no point in looking for anybody else. And I think I mentioned to him, he sent him over to meet John Steinbeck. Steinbeck was living in New York at the time also. And Steinbeck calls up Kazan and says the same thing. I don't think much of this guy, <laughs> but as soon as I opened the door... I was looking at Cal Trask for my book. So it's, it's a nice story. It's all kind of a magical story in a way, but a hard worker, you know, for he just didn't appear on the screen. He did a lot of work prior to that. Well, Bill, that image of James Dean has lasted a half century now. What is it about him that, that you find so memorable? I think just the American iconism of, you know, just beginning with the legend to kind of get the, get the reality from the myth. I think that was a big part of it. And of course, his talent. And his looks, just to look at him, he's this angelic figure, too. But I think that's part of an American icon, trying to get the reality from the myth. The Spanish would call it duende, kind of where magic and reality meet. So that's really, and that's one reason really why I went to Texas, too, just to get a sense of this guy really being alive, not just the red jacket and the, uh, and the good looks, being a real person and a real creative uh, genius, I think. Well, William Hughes, we appreciate that you're, you're talking to us, and we'll remind listeners that uh, your exhibit will be at the lobby of the Tower Theater for, uh, I guess, a couple more weeks. Yeah, I think so, Doug. All right, thank cool, you. Cool, Thanks very much. James Dean, James Dean, I know just what you Since we're delegating our, our third segment of the program to go over uh, obituaries, we must then move from uh, a popular icon, James Dean, to a fellow you've never heard of but was written up by U.S. News and World Report as one of the 25 most influential Americans of the 20th century. And I confess, until I read his obituary, I'd never heard of him either. His name was Leo Sternbach. He was a medicinal chemist, and he was the inventor of both Librium and Valium, which at one point accounted for 40% of the worldwide sales of the Roche Group. Mr. Sternbach was 97 years of age, born in 1908 in uh, what is now Croatia, the son of a Polish pharmacist. He earned a doctorate in chemistry at the University of Krakow in Poland then worked for six years at the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology in Zurich. It was made clear to him that a Jew could not advance far at the Institute, and in 1940 he joined what was then known as the F. Hoffman LaRoche Limited in Basel. When Roche moved its Jewish employees to the United States, Mr. Sternbach came to New Jersey, where he was put to work trying to develop a Me Too version of the what was then best-selling anti-anxiety drug Milltown. Milltown was a barbiturate. It was habit-forming and had all of the unpleasant side effects of the barbiturates, which meant that you were really quite sedated on them. Sternbach hoped he could do better and thought that modifying someone else's drug, the old Me Too drug, which is so common uh, you know, in, in pharma- pharmaceutical companies battling one another, he thought that was boring. 
and instead he followed a hunch about compounds he had studied as potential dyes years earlier in Poland. Their structure, he reasoned, could interact favorably with the human nervous system. But after two years of research uh, going nowhere, his bosses told him to drop the project and switch to developing antibiotics. Sternbach, however, continued to tinker with uh, these drugs on the side, and uh, within a couple of years had come up with the first benzodiazepine. When this drug was given to mice, they appeared to be relaxed, but appeared to be awake and alert. Since he wasn't supposed to be working on an anti-anxiety drug, Mr. Sternbach sat on the discovery for six months, finally using the excuse of a periodic laboratory cleanup he presented it to Lowell Randall, Roach's chief of pharmacology, as something he'd stumbled across and perhaps should be tested. That drug was Librium, which went on the market in 1960. Three years later, the company brought out Valium, also discovered by Mr. Sternbach, which was thought of as a successor to the longer-acting Librium. Valium was, in fact, a smash success. It was the biggest-selling drug in the United States from 1969 to 1980. Valium lost some luster later on when it was found to be addictive, as in fact are all the benzodiazepines. Interestingly, Mr. Sternbach's profit on these drugs he developed was $1, which he took when handing over uh, the patent rights to the company. He did receive a $10,000 prize offered by the company for the discovery of drugs that were significantly profitable. And I would note that all uh, benzodiazepines uh, do have an addictive potential, but they have been enormously useful drugs over the decades. And for that, we can thank Leo Sternbach. As a, as a medical doctor, I, I would note that over the years, um, I, I don't like to rely on the use of such medications, but for people experiencing uh, tragic loss, perhaps a death in the family, situational anxiety, um, there are times when you just need a little something, and uh, the benzodiazepines have proven to be much safer for that than the drugs that preceded them, the barbiturates. All right, uh, for our final uh, final item on today's program, we would like to note that the Sacramento News and Review annually gives awards for what it considers to be excellence uh, in, in local, well, local everything, everything from uh, real estate agents to, you know, who's selling the best tacos. We would like to give an attaboy to KDVS's own Michael Leahy, whose Cool as Folk program is uh, brought to you weekly on this station. Uh, Michael was um, cited for um, the work he's doing at the Delta of Venus, the Down at the Delta Americana series, which it goes on every Thursdays and Friday nights. The Sacramento News and Review voted this best place to rediscover Sacramento's Americana scene. The paper asked, what other series features national touring acts on a regular basis? What other series ties in directly with KDVS, often offering the curious listener a glimpse of what's to come on the live stage that evening, be it contemporary singer-songwriter fair, traditional bluegrass, jug band music, country twang, experimental acoustic freakouts, or something entirely different. Again, kudos to Michael, and you can bet your ass we're going to get him on this show to talk about uh, this, this event, which, which, frankly, I need to learn more about myself. We would like to also cite the award given by the paper for Best Radio Journalism, which was given to KVMR's NewsHour. They noted in the article that in some radio circles, KVMR is considered a sort of throwback Whereas everywhere, managers of non-commercial stations seem to be abandoning the old model of eclectic blocks of programming produced by local community members in favor of wall-to-wall NPR. But at KVR, station manager Steve Baker 
uh, once told SNNR that his station is really a throw forward. The station actually sends reporters to cover local government news and community issues every day and then fills a nightly broadcast with those reporters' stories and interviews. The paper noted we'd almost forgotten you could do that with radio. And they note that uh, uh, the KVMR NewsHour is on 89.5 FM from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. Monday through Friday. And I hope that Todd doesn't object to my mentioning that fact. And I would note that the best radio personality was awarded to Christine Kraft of Talk City. And we certainly would congratulate Christine. We've mentioned numerous times Christine has said she's going to talk to us here on Radio Parallax. We haven't been able to make that hookup yet, but we will, we will keep trying. One thing that did sort of uh, raise my eyebrows about this issue of News and Review was some of the readers' choices, particularly the readers' choices in uh, the area of media. I don't know why they felt it was necessary to include Best News Anchor Hair and give the award to Christina Mendonca. But I was somewhat stunned to note that the best local radio show, according to readers of the News and Review, was Rob, Arnie, and Don in the Morning in first place, Armstrong and Getty in second place, and the Tom Sullivan Show in third. Even more shocking was Best Local Radio Personality going to Tom Sullivan. Tom Sullivan's the guy that had on Ollie North a few months ago to talk about uh, how they need to clean up at the CIA to make sure that there's no one that would, like, support John Kerry over there analyzing intelligence. And uh, the aforementioned Armstrong and Getty will be joining Sean Hannity later tonight at the sold-out Ollie North appearance on stage at the, quote, You're a Great American, unquote, event at the Radisson. We're very surprised to learn that the Sacramento News and Review readers apparently like the kind of people that lionize folks like Oliver North, people like Armstrong and Getty, people like Tom Sullivan. We prefer to think of the Sacramento News and Review as the paper that uh, was employing Gary Webb and continues to do fine investigative journalism. But uh, we do wonder a bit about the readership. Of course, uh, some of those readers may be reading only for some of the escort ads which appear in the back of the magazine. We don't know. We're going to continue to explore that little mystery. But we're out of time on today's show. Our thanks to Rick Ely and William Hughes for joining us on today's program. In the weeks to come, we are going to be bringing you Onion editor Todd Hansen, which should be fun, as well as author Chris Mooney whose The Republican War on Science is something we are keen to talk about. This has been Radio Parallax. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm Douglas Everett, and now stay tuned for Todd.